Next on Lectures in History, Andrew Slapp of East Tennessee State University teaches a class on Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, and the Constitution. He compares how both presidents have been portrayed as either upholding or disregarding the Constitution and whether their reputations match their actions in office. Good morning. Thank you all for coming. Today, we're transitioning in the course from Civil War to Reconstruction. Because of that, it's a particularly good point in this course to talk about a big issue that goes throughout the Civil War era, that we need to look at both the antebellum period, the Civil War, and Reconstruction to really understand. And that question is the United States Constitution. One of the things historians have been asking for generations about the Constitution and the Civil War era, a very basic question, is to what degree did the Constitution shape the Civil War era? To what degree did it make political actors do certain things, constrain them, or guide their actions? On the flip side, to what degree did the Civil War era shape the Constitution? Some of this is very clear in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that directly changed the Constitution, but also different views of the Constitution. And one of the things that people have looked at and looking back at the U.S. Constitution during the Civil War era is how different people, particularly presidents, have interacted with the Constitution. Have they followed it? Have they tried to defend it? Have they abridged the Constitution? And this shapes how many people think of presidents during the Civil War era. Now, two principal people we're going to be looking at today are Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson. And how they interacted with the Constitution, how the Constitution shaped their thinking, and how they affected the Constitution in turn. Now, these days, if you're going to do research on something like Andrew Johnson or Abraham Lincoln and the Constitution, what is the first thing we do? What? Say the S out again. If you're going to do research on something these days, what do you do first? Get on the internet. Exactly. <laughs> Google it, right? Yep. Go to Google. So, preparing for this, the first thing I did was Google Abraham Lincoln Constitution. This was the first result I got. U.S. News Story, Revoking Civil Liberties, Lincoln's Constitutional Dilemma. And this is often how people think about Abraham Lincoln, the Constitution during the Civil War. Suspending written of habeas corpus, other infringements upon civil liberties, playing fast and loose at times with the Constitution. And it's not just if you Google it, if you go through books about Abraham Lincoln, the Constitution, many of them focus on those aspects. Now, it's harder to, there's not as many internet searches for Andrew Johnson as there are for Abraham Lincoln, amazingly enough. So rather than Google it, I decided to get an idea of the representation of Andrew Johnson in the Constitution. Let's go to the National Park Service. This is from the website of the Andrew Johnson Historic Site in Greenville, Tennessee just a little ways from where we sit now. 
and they've decided the interpretation of Andrew Johnson is the Constitution president. Sounds good, right? They even go on not just on their main site, but in some of their materials. Here it's, the Constitution shall be saved and the Union preserved. It's a little different than Lincoln is constitutional dilemma, right? Add to that, they talk, this is a close-up of that pamphlet we just saw, where it said Johnson formulated his political philosophy early on, a strict interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, a belief in states' rights. Does anyone want to quickly explain what strict construction of the Constitution is? No government intervention with the economy. Um, you know, very, very lax on personal liberty, um, but also uh, very lax on property, therefore not interfering with any type of property, whether it being slavery or home. Well, that not interfering in the economy is particularly early on in the antebellum period where a lot of the debate over strict versus broad construction of the Constitution occurred. Even more generally, though, when you talk about strict construction of the Constitution, it says, does the Constitution say you can do this? If it doesn't say you can do this, you can't do it. A broad construction would be, well, does the Constitution stop me from doing it? If it doesn't stop me from doing it, okay, I can go ahead and do it. So here it's a strict construction of the Constitution. Going letter of the law is what they're saying, how he, Johnson interpreted it. While the idea of Lincoln playing fast and loose to the Constitution pervades even to this day much of the historical interpretation. What I'm going to propose today is we take a look, not just at one or two incidents, but travel from the antebellum period all the way through Reconstruction, looking at Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Johnson, what they said about the Constitution, what they did with the Constitution. And what I think we will find, well, actually, I know because I put this together, <laughs> is that at the end, Abraham Lincoln, in many ways, the strict, has a stricter construction of the Constitution, has more reverence for the Constitution, and wants to preserve the Constitution in its original form, in many ways, more than Andrew Johnson. And that Andrew Johnson, his actions during Reconstruction are often explained partly by the Constitution trying to adhere to it, but also for other reasons maybe not quite as noble as trying to save or preserve the Constitution. Let's start with Abraham Lincoln. Actually, when we're starting with Abraham Lincoln, I should also say, let's start with understanding that I, like many historians, like Abraham Lincoln and think he's one of the greatest presidents in the United States. I, like most historians, also, don't particularly like Andrew Johnson and think he's one of the worst presidents of the United States. So I should at least state our biases up front. But I think over the next hour, you'll see why many historians revere Lincoln and don't take as kindly to Andrew Johnson. Now, to understand Lincoln and his background with the Constitution, there's a couple things that informed his understanding of it. One was nationalism. 
Lincoln, from his earliest days, was a nationalist. And we don't have writings from him you know, when he was six or seven years old or a teenager talking about nationalism. But we can get some sense of this, of how important nationalism was to him from a speech he gave on the, after being elected president on his trip to Washington, D.C. to be inaugurated. And he told the crowd, he said, may I be pardoned if upon this occasion I mention that way back in my childhood, the earliest days of my being able to read, I got hold of a small book, such a one as few of the younger members have ever seen, Weems' Life of Washington. I remember all of the accounts that were there given of battlefields and the struggles for the liberties of the country. And as you all know, for you have all been boys, how these early impressions last longer than any others. So it's this biography of Washington. It's one of his earliest memories and sticks with him and helps inform that sense of nationalism. Now, Zach just mentioned earlier, we talk about nationalism in the antebellum period, in the 1820s, 1830s, into the 1840s. There's a particular, one of the strongest symbols of nationalism at this time is something we've talked about before, which is the American system. It comes about after the War of 1812. Henry Clay is one of its greatest proponents. And it's the idea of using the federal government to help build infrastructure. Roads, canals, ports, to help the economy throughout the country thrive and promote industry and commerce. It was also the idea of having protective tariffs to help industry grow and creating another national bank to help finance the economy. This envisioned idea of an active federal government, but to promote the well-being of everyone. Now, of course, if you're going to talk about the federal government helping to build canals, you have to have at least a somewhat broad construction of the Constitution. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say the federal government can build canals or can have a national bank or anything like this. This was when antebellum period, a lot of the fierce debates between Whigs and Democrats, like Andrew Jackson and later Andrew Johnson. But Lincoln thought that the Constitution allowed this, allowed this, the federal government to do this. And because of this, he was very protective of the Constitution. He didn't think it needed to be changed to allow internal improvements or the American system. And he repeatedly throughout 1840s, 1850s, talked about the perfection of the Constitution and how much he revered it. Here's a speech in the House of Representatives in 1848. He said, I have already said that no one who is satisfied of the expediency of making improvements needs be much uneasy in his conscience about its constitutionality. And those making improvements, that's where he's talking about the American system. I wish now to submit a few remarks on the general proposition of amending the Constitution. As a general rule, I think we would be much better, we would much better let it alone. No slight occasion should attempt us to touch it, 
Better not to take the first step, which may lead to the habit of altering it. Better rather habituate ourselves to thinking of it as unalterable. It can scarcely be made better than it is. New provisions would introduce new difficulties and thus create an increased appetite for further change. No, sir, let it stand as it is. New hands have never touched it. The men who made it have done their work and have passed away. Who shall improve on what they did? Can't be much clearer than that, can you? Now, one thing we're going to come back to again and again today is I'm sure most of us, most people, sometimes say something and then change our minds or say something contradictory later. So if somebody says something just once, well, maybe it doesn't mean what we think. And that's even more so the case for politicians. So often let's try to find a couple examples of this. This is 1848, nearly a decade later. Lincoln, different crowd, says don't interfere with anything in the Constitution. That must be maintained for it is the only safeguard of our liberties. And not to Democrats alone do I make this appeal, but to all who love these great and true principles. A decade later, in different circumstances, Lincoln is once again saying, don't touch the Constitution. Now, one of the questions about this, though, is, of course, Lincoln and the Republicans, sorry, in the 1850s, wanted to eventually end slavery. They're anti-slavery, wanting to restrict it with the eventual goal of eliminating slavery. And the question is, how could they argue, as he is here, saying it's the Democrats who are attacking the Constitution, when, as we've talked about before, Lincoln and Republicans accept that the Constitution protects slavery? That's where we come to this little saying. One of the top historians of this generation said, history is what the present chooses to remember about the past. And Lincoln and many Republicans at the time selectively read history to, un to see the Constitution as actually anti-slavery instead of pro-slavery. And this was not just Lincoln. This was widespread throughout the North. Though Lincoln, in particular, focused on this with his reverence of the Constitution, but in a particular interpretation of that Constitution. He turned to some two of his political heroes, Henry Clay, senator from Kentucky, and Thomas Jefferson from Virginia, and looked at what they said about slavery. Both of them repeatedly wrote about the evils of slavery and the ways to try to eliminate slavery. Of course, he didn't concentrate on as much that both of them were major slave owners, Jefferson owning over 100 slaves, Clay owning over 50 slaves during their lifetime, and that though they talked about it, they didn't push legislation through that would have actually limited or ended slavery, at least not very often. So selectively taking what was useful from Henry Clay and Jefferson, they're able to start looking at the United States 
and the Constitution itself as guiding the nation toward ending slavery. Lincoln, in a speech in 1854, said, the theory of our government is universal freedom. All men are created free and equal, says the Declaration of Independence. So here's going back to Jefferson, Declaration of Independence, say, saying that all men are free and equal. That's anti-slavery. Says the word slavery is not found in the Constitution. Thus, the Constitution did not affirm slavery. It looked toward its ultimate extinction. Because look, we start with the Declaration of Independence saying everybody's equal. Everyone should be free. Constitution doesn't mention slavery. Look, the founders were on a path to try to eventually end it. From this interpretation, he takes the says, understanding the Constitution supports the American system, sees an eventual end of slavery. That's the Constitution that Lincoln wants to protect. And he frames it as he is the conservative, that he is the one preserving the Constitution. This is even before he becomes president. Famous uh, Cooper Union address says, what is the frame of government under which we live? The answer must be the Constitution of the United States. And then he tells the crowd, also talking about Democrats, he said, but you say you are conservative, in Democrats, eminently conservative, while we are revolutionary, destructive, or something of the sort. What is conservatism? Is it not adherence to the old and tried against the new and untried? We stick to, contend for, the identical old policy on the point in controversy, which was adopted by our fathers who framed the government under which we live. Said, while you, with one accord, reject and scout and spit upon that policy and insist upon substituting something new. You're laughing, Drew? Yeah. Well, what about? I just, um... I don't know, he just kind of stuck it to them. But uh, he kind of turned it, turned it back on them, saying they're the ones like, like saying words like spit upon that old policy. He's, uh, I don't know, he's just very uh, blunt, I guess. Yeah, he's, see, he's a good politician. <laughs> well, and he's going back and saying, look at the Declaration of Independence. Look at the Northwest Ordinance, which prohibits slavery in the old Northwest, which eventually becomes the Midwest today which was written by Thomas Jefferson. He said, you can find abolitionist origins or anti-slavery principles among the founding fathers. You can also find pro-slavery elements, but Lincoln here is focusing upon selectively reading those anti-slavery abolitionist sentiments and amplifying those in his understanding of the Constitution. And because he's saying that's the Constitution he's protecting. Now, this is a cartoon from 1860, just before the presidential election. You can see Abraham Lincoln walking a tightrope, the African-American on his shoulders, and the balance, balancing pole is the Constitution. And this was a tightrope he was walking of how to be anti-slavery and want the eventual demise of slavery while at the same time recognizing that, to a large degree, the Constitution protected the rights of states to have slaves, even if 
eventually he thought the Constitution intended for the end of slavery. And here you can see the balance in Lincoln's approach to both slavery and the Constitution. He was firmly anti-slavery, becoming more and more abolitionist. But still, early in the war, he faced a crisis. Actually, I should say he has many, many crises in the beginning of the war. One of these, though, was made by the Union itself, one of his generals and a political rival, John C. Fremont. Fremont had been the first nominee for the president for the Republicans in 1856. No one had expected him to win. He was just famous, like campaigning. So Fremont is the first Republican nominee. Then when the Republicans take power, he's very well politically connected, and he's appointed to command the military district out in the West. Out there, he decides to issue a proclamation on his own without consulting with Lincoln, freeing slaves of Confederates. Now, keep in mind the timing of this. This is in 1861. Lincoln is worried about the border states, Kentucky and Missouri, that have slaves but have, have not left the Union, of keeping them in the Union. He doesn't want to move too fast on slavery. At this point, slavery's not even, ending slavery is not even a Union war aim. It's not part of the war yet, at least officially. And Lincoln asks Fremont to rescind his proclamation. Fremont says no. Lincoln asks him again. Fremont says no. So finally, Lincoln removes Fremont from command and revokes the proclamation. Now, we talked about that balancing act with the Constitution and slavery. There's also that political balancing act Lincoln has. On the one hand, he's trying to keep the border states in the Union. He's trying to pacify or keep happy Democrats and moderate and conservative Republicans. But radical Republicans, abolitionists, are aghast at what he does by undoing Fremont's proclamation. One of them is an old friend in Illinois, O.H. Browning, who wrote to Lincoln complaining about what he had done in regards to Fremont's proclamation. And Lincoln writes back, a lengthy letter explaining why he did it. And we're going to take a look at a few different sections of this letter because I think they're interesting for both understanding Lincoln and the Constitution, how he viewed his role as a president, and it puts later actions in, well, how do I say, interesting light. About midway through, he says, and the same is true of slaves. If the general needs them, he can seize them and use them. But when the need is passed, it is not for him to fix their permanent future condition. That must be settled according to the laws made by lawmakers and not by military proclamations. The proclamation and the point in question is simply dictatorship. It assumes that the general may do anything he pleases, confiscate the lands and free the slaves of loyal people as well as disloyal ones. And going the whole figure, I have no doubt 
would be more popular with some thoughtless people than that which has been done. They're saying general issuing a command, a proclamation freeing these slaves is taking over what should be civilian government, what lawmakers should do. That you can, if he needs the slaves for military purpose, okay. But you should not be making legislation. He said, I cannot assume this reckless position nor allow others to assume it on my responsibility. You speak of it as being the only means of saving the government. On the contrary, it is itself the surrender of the government. Can it be pretended that it is any longer the government of the U.S., any government of the Constitution and laws, when a general or a president may make permanent rules of property by proclamation? And of course, if you're freeing slaves, slaves are property. They're saying by proclamation, you are taking away somebody's property. He goes on to say, I do not say Congress might not with any propriety pass a law on the point just such as General Fremont proclaimed. I do not say I might not as a member of Congress vote for it. What I object to is that I as president shall expressly or impliedly seize and exercise the permanent legislative functions of the government. So here he's saying he morally agrees with Fremont. That's what he would like. And if, Cong if he was in Congress, he might and probably would vote for such a measure. But that's not his position. And it's not the position of Fremont. Saying he's, as commander in chief, he cannot do that. Because then he's stepping in and taking over powers that belong to Congress. Now, of course, there's a couple ways to look at this letter. One, we talk about how that big question originally, to what degree does the Civil War era shape the Constitution or the Constitution shape the Civil War era? Lincoln here is specifically stating that the Constitution, at least his understanding of it, is shaping his actions, limits what he can do. Now, it's also matter of what he does later in the war. As, you were, as I was reading all this, what were you thinking about? See, I anticipated what you were going to say. <laughs> right, because it's not, it's about a year later that Lincoln is issuing the preliminary emancipation proclamation. In some ways, doing exactly what he would said he shouldn't do. And what Fremont shouldn't do. Some of these are he's claimed by the pressure of the war. He had to. Yes? The only thing like Lincoln just thought was the time to do it when Fremont knew it, did it. Well, certainly what the question what you're asking whether the, it, he thought it just wasn't time to do it when Fremont did the proposal? Yes, Fremont's proclamation because of the politics, because of the border states. It would have, there would be even more repercussions than when he did it later in 1862. The whole nature of the war had already started changing by that point. So some of it, you could say, is expediency, that politically, strategically, it was not the right thing to do in 1861. 
And in eight, by the end of 1862, suddenly that makes more sense for the war effort. And the political, the politics had changed. So that's certainly some aspect of it. Though it's also interesting that, to keep in mind that almost as soon as he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln starts pushing for the 13th Amendment. And what's the difference between the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment? The Emancipation Proclamation is a war measure. And the 13th Amendment is something guaranteed by the Constitution. Right. It's the 13th Amendment is law. That's where he's talking about is lawmakers creating law. Part of the reason he goes... Yeah. And in the proclamation, it was just like slaves was free and states of rebellion. The 13th Amendment, it was all slaves was free. Right. But another good point you're making is, is that the 13th Amendment just freed slaves in places where there was rebellion. It doesn't end the institution of slavery, and there were still slaves in parts that had been conquered by the Union, while the 13th Amendment ends the institution of slavery. That's one big distinction. It's the other, another big distinction, particularly important for what we're talking about today, is in getting at the mind of Lincoln, is that he's worried is the Emancipation Proclamation constitutional? Is this going to hold up? Could this be reversed? And trying to cement that into place with legislation by Congress, by the lawmakers, not by a general or a president acting as commander-in-chief. Uh, any questions on Lincoln and Constitution? Okay. Within just a few months of passing the 13th Amendment through Congress, of course, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. He's replaced by Andrew Johnson as vice president. Now, we're lucky today. I'll talk before I talk about Johnson. We're lucky because we actually have someone who works at the Andrew Johnson Historic Site. Would you like to do a, give us a brief synopsis of Johnson's background? Um, Johnson, uh, originally born in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, in the early 1820s, had actually uh, grew up in North Carolina, but his father had died whenever he was very young, and so his mother had raised him. And uh, during this time, she actually helped him find an apprenticeship uh, for Taylor. And uh, with this, he moved all around the state. He actually moved through South Carolina a few times, through Alabama a few times, got really exposed to the Deep South in general. Came back to North Carolina and got another apprenticeship with a, another tailor. With the apprenticeship, that was another form of basically slavery by another means. Um, they were entitled to every wish of that master of the, um, till they were 18. Johnson decided to end up leaving Raleigh, North Carolina, with his mother and his stepfather, and found his way into Greenville. Whenever that happened, he ended up buying his own tailor shop, and you know, ended up buying a house in Greenville, where he stayed at for, you know, till 1857. Then he bought a new house in Greenville, which is his actual homestead. Um, one thing about Johnson is uh, he is a great political leader inside East Tennessee. Um, East Tennessee was really a Whig 
heavily uh, political state. Um, East Tennessee was not really a Democratic stronghold, but he kind of helped turn it into more of a Democratic stronghold because he was the epitome of a Democrat. Andrew Johnson, his hero was Andrew Jackson. Uh, his other hero was Thomas Jefferson. So ardent state rights, uh, ardent for um, protection of slavery as another thing that he's also before, and he was also a slave owner himself. He owned over uh, about nine slaves in his lifetime, I believe, somewhere in that range. About 10 to, 10 no. to 12. Okay. So, and he often, Johnson played up the apprenticeship as slavery, that he'd been treated as a slave. There was a, there was a difference in actuality. In his mind, though, he conflates the two, and it's one of the reasons why he is often attacks planters, the wealthier slave owners who he sees as looking down on poor whites like him. Even when he becomes wealthy, he still identifies and sees himself as a poor white. And that guides a lot of his philosophy. And a lot of what he does in that, his life is that self-image of being the poor, hard scrabble white person pulling himself up. Now, I just talked about how he didn't like planters. He viewed himself, even before the war, and certainly when secession started ripping the country apart, is that he was with the honest yeoman, fighting the slaveocracy. These were the words he was using, of what he called a pampered, bloated, corrupted aristocracy. And these are these people with huge plantations at this time in Nash, from Nashville going to Memphis and down the Mississippi River people who really did control much of Southern economy, Southern politics. Even though Johnson was a United States senator, he still thought that he was being looked down upon by these people. And these people were controlling the economy and everything in Southern society for their benefit and hurting poor whites like he had been and who he thought he was representing. And of course, eventually, Zach was mentioning he does rather well for himself and makes a lot of his money in property investment throughout the area, buying and selling different uh, properties. Ends up living in a rather nice home, owning 10, 11 slaves. Amazingly enough, historians cannot even figure out exactly how many slaves he did own during his lifetime. That is a debated point. And Unlike Abraham Lincoln, who, remember, repeatedly talked about his preference for leaving the Constitution alone in the 1840s and in the 1850s, Johnson, who's going to save the Constitution, and is the Constitution president, repeatedly, throughout his life, wanted to change the Constitution, wanted to amend it. Did in 1851, in 1860, in 1868, and multiple times, made multiple proposals to amend the Constitution. So right here is the difference between Lincoln and Johnson. It's also interesting to see what he's trying to change about it. He wants a direct election of U.S. senators, a 12-year term on all federal judges, eliminating the Electoral College. Essentially what? the first populist. <laughs> Yes, in many ways a populist, <laughs> if we get to, at least in some ways. 
But in all of these things, he's trying to say, let's give power, as more political power to average Americans. But he's also, in doing this, one, these are some major changes, right? Eliminating the Electoral College. Also, doing direct election of U.S. senators. What does that, in effect, mean? He wants the federal government to tell states how they should select their senators. Does that sound like states' rights? An electoral college, part of the, I mean, people are discussing it even to this day, is based on the idea of the states coming together. If you get rid of the electoral college and just have a popular national election, that's a limit, limiting the influence of states. So in many ways throughout his life, Johnson at sometimes is a strict constructionist and wants to save the Constitution and wants states' rights. On other times, though, it's like, let's rip up good chunks of the Constitution and change them. Let's take away power, at least in some ways, from the states or tell states what to do. Now, of course, Johnson had been made Abraham Lincoln's vice president uh, nominee in 1864 because he was a Democrat, so that Lincoln could run on a Union Party ticket. He could be a Republican, Johnson a Democrat, to try to attract broader political support during the middle of the war, and so that Democrats could vote for Abraham Lincoln and say, we're voting not for a Republican, but we're voting for a Republican and a Democrat who are going to prosecute this war fully. Now, this would have dire repercussions when Lincoln's assassinated and Johnson becomes president. They're not from the same political party. They don't have the same political philosophy. And this is seen within just several months of Johnson taking power of becoming president. Many radical Republicans initially thought that Johnson may work better with them than Lincoln had. Lincoln pocket vetoed one of the radical Republicans' attempts at Reconstruction. But he was starting to negotiate with them to try to figure out how to go forward. Johnson had been very severe throughout the war against Southern planters, against the Southern aristocracy, and pushed to fight a hard war. But at heart, as this quote of his explains, he said, damn the Negroes, I'm fighting these traitorous aristocrats, their masters. He was not fighting the war to end slavery. He was fighting the war to preserve the Union and possibly punish the people he thought were responsible for the war. And we see this carry out, carry on in Reconstruction. So, so he was basically saying, like, slave owners was the reason for the war? Yes. Or like, slave masters was the reason for the war? Right, and not just slave owners. From his perspective, from Johnson's perspective, the people who were most responsible for the war were the wealthy planters, people who owned 20, 30, 40, 100 slaves, and have outsized political power and influence. Did you have a question, Bob? No? 
And remember, this is a struggle that we're Lincoln talked about earlier with Fremont's proposal of who is going, what is the role of the president, what is the role of Congress? Lincoln had taken a great deal of power as president during war. And Congress and Lincoln had fought over that periodically. In the Fremont case, he's saying, I don't have the power I sh constitutionally to do some of these things I'd want to do. Congress needs to do it. That's why even when he takes the step of the Emancipation Proclamation, he's still pushing the 13th Amendment to have Congress, the lawmakers, decide it. Well, Congress, after Lincoln's death, continues to try to dictate Reconstruction policy. They think that's their role, is to decide how the nation is supposed to be reconstructed. They start passing various pieces of legislation. One of the first ones is the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. Or I should say the extension of the Freedmen's Bureau. And this idea was to create an agency that was going to help African Americans adjust to freedom, to freedom, provide money for schools, provide people who can negotiate between former slaves and former slave owners for them to work together, and that's economically get jobs, to be able to help resettle them on millions of acres of land. And Johnson vetoes it. This came as a shock to many of the Republicans. The author of the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, Lyman Trumbull, was a moderate. It's almost the definition of a moderate Republican. He had specifically written the bill, trying to keep it as conservative as possible to bring on more conservative Republicans to support it. And, the th and so Johnson would sign it. He was surprised that it got, that it was vetoed, along with many other Republicans. Now, they had to, Republicans had to go back, rewrite the bill to make it even more conservative so that it could get, get enough votes to override Johnson's veto. So they ended up, ended up limiting the effectiveness of the Freedmen's Bureau. And this set a pattern going on into the 1866. And one of those patterns is Johnson's interaction with Congress and the vetoes. Now, some of you may notice at least the formatting. This comes from the old faithful Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't suggest you always trust them as sources of information. They are useful, though. Wikipedia is useful for getting some charts and graphs. And this is of summary of vetoes from George Washington through Andrew Johnson. So here's the number of vetoes, or the total number of all vetoes, and the number of vetoes overridden. What do you notice? Double than the next man, which would be Jackson. Right, John. Twenty-nine. Johnson is the equal of even the next two. Yeah. He's more than the next two most. Well, 
Most of them get overridden. Right. Most, a lot of Johnson's ones get overridden. Now, it's certainly constitutional for the president to veto congressional legislation. That's in the Constitution. But Johnson is acting in a way that no previous president had done with regard to that power in the Constitution. He's acting in a rather radical revolutionary way compared to all previous presidents. And what he does is consistently vetoing congressional attempts at reconstruction. First, the Freedmen's Bureau bill, a civil rights bill, trying to guarantee civil rights for African Americans and all other people in the United States. And eventually, Congress decides it needs to be even more aggressive in Reconstruction. What they turn to is Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, which says the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. Now remember this. We're going to be coming back to this very language. Because lots of different people use it for different purposes during the Civil War era. What this means is that the federal government is supposed to that it's the federal government's responsibility to make sure that every state, whether it's Tennessee, Massachusetts, or California, has a Republican form of government. Not oligarchy, not despotism, but a Republican form of government. And Charles Sumner, senator from Massachusetts, said that that clause, that section of the Constitution, is a sleeping giant, never until this recent war awakened, but now it comes forward with a giant's power. There's no clause in the Constitution like it. There are no other clause which gives to Congress such supreme power over the states. So you'd think this is something Andrew Johnson would hate, talking about using this clause of the Constitution to give power to the federal government over the states. And he does hate the way Congress decides to use it. Congress uses that clause to pass in 1867 the Military Reconstruction Acts. Divides the former Confederacy up into five different military districts, puts generals in charge, and said that the government's, civilian governments put into place under Andrew Johnson after the war were not Republican in form. That the way they were treating African Americans and Unionists meant that these states weren't Republican and that there needed to be federal control until they could establish those Republican forms of government. Johnson vetoed, not surprisingly, military reconstruction bill. And he said that he felt, this is according to the Andrew Johnson site in Greenville, Tennessee, felt the Military Reconstruction Act was an unconstitutional extension of federal power into areas of state jurisdiction, and that this would lead to despotism. In his veto message to Congress, he says, I submit to Congress whether this measure is not in its holy character, character, scope, and object without precedent. Keep in this mind, he's saying this is without precedent and without authority in palpable conflict with the plainest provisions of the Constitution. Uh, invasion, insurrection, rebellion, domestic violence were anticipated when the government was framed, and the means of repelling and suppressing them were wisely provided for in the Constitution. And finally, the Constitution also forbids the arrest of the citizen without judicial warrant, founded on probable cause. 
This bill authorizes an arrest without warrant at the pleasure of a military commander. So he's complaining here about this act that he's vetoing and some of his reasons why is one, there's no precedent for this. There's no precedent for this military and federal occupation and running civilian governments. And that this authorizes arrest without warrant, the pleasure of a military commander. So he says this is why he's doing it. Now, this is the problem when you have a long paper record. It's a politician. Let's take a look at what he said just a few years earlier in 1862 in a speech in Nashville. He said, in such a lamentable crisis, the government of the United States could not be unmindful of its high constitutional obligation to guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. So the basis of what Congress is basing their actions on, and he's arguing against, he's using the same justif constitutional justification as Congress, the Republican form of government clause. Uh, an obligation which every state has a direct and immediate interest in, and having observed towards every other state, and from which by no action on the part of the people in any state can the federal government be absolved. A Republican form of government in consonance with the Constitution of the United States is one of the fundamental conditions of our political existence, by which every part of the country is alike bound, and from which no part can escape. And here's where some irony comes in. This obligation the national government is now attempting to discharge. I've been appointed, in the absence of the regular and established state authorities, as military governor for the time being. The person who's saying there's no precedent for creating these military districts was five years earlier military governor of Tennessee. And you see, well, maybe there was an emergency. And this is during wartime. Of course, he's going to restore civilian government as quickly as possible. How long do you think it took under Andrew Johnson for there to be civilian government to replace a, a military governor in the state of Tennessee? Six months? Twelve months? Three years? It's closer to three. It was actually about, about two and a half years. It was even as he was running for vice president, he was still military governor of Tennessee. So maybe there was some precedent. Now he also said he didn't, was, well, I'll say he didn't like arrests. As I pointed out, you need to see, check for a few different times. If he may, he just said this once. Except then you see a year later in 1863, says, Union men of the, those sections of the country whose necks rest beneath the iron heel of power asked you to carry out the Constitution. I do not demand it for them as a privilege, but demand it of you as a right, that the traitors of this rebellion shall be put down. Why? Because the United States shall, not may, guarantee the state, uh, guarantee to every state in the Union a Republican form of government. He's coming back to the same constitutional clause that Congress was using to justify the mil Military Reconstruction Acts. I call on the sympathizers here. I demand in the name of the Constitution as it is, protection and support of the guarantee of a Republican form of government for the Union men of the South. So this is a position he's consistently stating publicly. He also says 
Mr. Lincoln came into power, administering the Constitution like an honest man and loving my country. I determined to sustain him. As he called for men to defend the Constitution and the laws, he has been denounced as a usurper and despot. If he had not called on you when your country was in peril, would not the same armies have been raised by the South and the revolution gone on? What sort of a government would you have today? Would it not have been a military despotism? It says, you complain of the great wrong he has done, of arrests, etc., with suspension of habeas corpus, military commanders arresting civilians. It says, if I had any complaint to make, it is that President Lincoln has not done more to crush the rebellion. So he's saying if he has any more complaint, it's not that Abraham Lincoln was using the military to make arrests or suspending the writ of habeas corpus. It's that Lincoln wasn't making more arrests, wasn't suspending the writ of habeas corpus more. And here's the person who's the defender of the Constitution, which gets even a little harder to think of when Early 1866, have you seen this? Are you laughing at the, Zach's laughing because this is for the Andrew Johnson Historic Site. This is their, uh, one of their major images, especially for the movie. And we'll be seeing this again later today. But a speech in Washington, Andrew Johnson said, I know it was said by some during the rebellion that our constitution had been rolled up as a piece of parchment and laid away. That in the time of war and the rebellion, there was no constitution. Well, we know that sometimes, from the very great necessity of the case, from a great emergency, we must do unconstitutional things in order to preserve the Constitution itself. Do they have that quote at the National Historic Site? Well, this starts getting at the question of Johnson, if he is resisting Reconstruction and the Reconstruction efforts of Congress, but there's times where he's willing to say, we need to have arrests. We need to guarantee Republican form of government in every state. What is driving him? Is it constitutional principles or is it something else? Keep in mind also, and talk about this precedent when he said he'd, why he had rejected it earlier, and that he's recognizing once again that. North Carolina here has a right to have a Republican form of government, and that's the power of the United States to maintain that. And I just mentioned, what is guiding him? Since he seems to be bouncing around constitutionally, there's times where he wants to preserve that Republican form of government in each state. Other times he doesn't care as much. There's times where he wants lots of arrests, and times he says that's horrible. Times where he says there's no precedent for having military governors when he was a military governor himself five years earlier. I would suggest one of the things that drives him and drives his views on the Constitution or how he interprets the Constitution at various points is white supremacy. As a congressman, he actually declared on the House floor that he was for the white man's government in America. Um, I don't know how more explicit you can get. <laughs> Well, we're going to see, <laughs> because he is pretty explicit on this. This, in 1866 and 1865, the, one of the biggest debates is African-American suffrage 
nationally, but also specifically in Washington, D.C., because that was a place the federal government controlled. So if Congress wanted, and the Republicans in Congress, wanted to give African Americans the right to vote, they couldn't necessarily do that in South Carolina or Massachusetts without passing a constitutional amendment. But they could do it in Washington, D.C. A group of abolitionists led by Frederick Douglass met with Andrew Johnson, trying to talk with him about getting suffrage both broadly throughout the nation, but also in Washington, D.C. Frederick Douglass had thought the meeting had gone fairly well. Him and the delegation left, and afterward, just, as after, just after they left, Johnson was reported by a couple of the people at the meeting to have said this about Frederick Douglass. Those blank sons of blank thought they had me in a trap. I know that blank Douglas. He's just like any other blank and would sooner cut a white man's throat than not. Pretty explicit, right? Maybe it's just a one-off. Well, Congress voted to give African Americans the right to vote in 1866. Johnson vetoes it. He's explained, said entirely, and this is his, his words, Johnson says, entirely disregarding the wishes of the people of the District of Columbia, Congress has deemed it right and expedient to pass the measure now submitted for my signature. It therefore becomes the duty of the executive, standing between the legislation of the one and the will of the other, fairly expressed, to determine whether he should approve the bill and thus aid in placing upon the statute books of the nation a law against which the people to whom it is to apply has solemnly and with such unanimity protested, or whether he should return it with his objections in the hope that upon reconsideration, Congress, acting as the representative of the inhabitants of the seat of government, will permit them to regulate a purely local question as to them may seem best suited to their interests and condition. He's saying, what he's saying here is, Local white people around Washington, D.C. don't want African-Americans voting. And that Congress should be responsive to them. And that it's his job to step in because Congress isn't listening to local concerns. This all sounds fairly reasonable, right? Except, remember, Johnson himself says, National Historic Site says, he believes in a strict construction of the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, legislative powers of Congress are among them to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, meaning what eventually becomes the District of Columbia. So if you're a strict constructionist, who has the power to legislate for Washington, D.C.? Congress. It doesn't say anything that they're representing the people there. It's not saying, well, the president should be involved in this process. It's saying Congress has that power. It's very explicit. Now, Johnson explained, I yield to no one an attachment to that rule of general suffrage which distinguishes our policy as a nation. But there's a limit, wisely observed here too, which makes the ballot a privilege and a trust and which requires of some classes a time suitable for probation and preparation. To give it indiscriminately to a new class, wholly unprepared by previous habits, 
and opportunities to perform the trust which it demands is to degrade it and finally to destroy its power. For it may be safely assumed that no political truth is better established than in such indiscriminate and all-embracing extension of popular suffrage must end at last in its destruction. What is he saying here? I'm saying if you give just, if you allow everybody to vote, and you give them out this privilege, this ability indiscriminately, allowing everyone, that you're going to destroy the republic. And that here you're giving this, as he says, a new class, not prepared to vote, just suddenly allowing them the power and privilege of voting is going to destroy things, destroy the government. Now, of course, who is he referring to in that class? He's referring to African Americans. Now, the irony here, of course, is, as Zach said at the beginning, who is his hero? Right. And what is Andrew Jackson, even the age of Jackson, one of the, one of the things it's best known for? White supremacy. Well, white supremacy, but also universal ma white male suffrage. In the space of just a few years, many states allowed, before, before people had to have property restrictions or had to pay a certain amount of taxes, started opening up the ability to vote to all white men. So by political philosophy, he believes Sure, all white men should vote. And they made that change rather suddenly. But if it's now African-American men, well, they're not prepared for it. And you can see here even more clearly his explanation that this is of, that this white supremacy guiding his interpretation here. 1865, he tells a senator that, quote, white men must manage the South. Same year he told the governor of Missouri, this is a country for white men, and by God, so long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men. He's being pretty clear here, right? Of course, when I presented at Andrew Johnson's site in Greenville and said Andrew Johnson was a white supremacist, I was told, well, those are harsh words. We really shouldn't say those things about him. I said, he says those things about himself. And this is 1867, Johnson wrote to Congress that the subjugation of the states to Negro domination would be worse than the military despotism under which they suffer now. So he says it would be worse to give African Americans the right to vote. That's worse than having what he considers military despotism. And Hans Trephaus, who's probably written the best biography to date, of Andrew Johnson. His conclusion is Johnson's opposition to congressional reconstruction was not merely based on constitutional scruples. It also reflected his deeply felt racial prejudices. And throughout the first couple of years of his presidency, Johnson, as we saw earlier, vetoes over two dozen pieces of legislation. He took many other steps to try to obstruct laws passed by Congress and tries to regularly interfere with the military and Congress and civilian agencies trying to implement Reconstruction. 
According to another historian, the President of the United States was consciously and determinedly following a program designed to nullify congressional legislation through the power of executive implementation. So where Lincoln is very conscious and cautious about trying to step into the bounds of what should be Congress's role, Johnson here is regulated through both, just not through the veto, but through appointments and other means, trying to subvert what Congress is doing with regard to Reconstruction. One of the Republican congressmen said, if the House and Senate by a two-thirds vote pass a bill over the veto, it becomes a law. And until it is repealed by the same authority or nulled by the Supreme Court, the President of the United States has but one duty, and that is to obey it. And no consideration or opinion of his as to its constitutionality will defend or protect him in any degree. The argument here, or I should say the argument, I think at the National Historic Site, is, well, Johnson wasn't implementing some of these laws that Congress passed because he thought they were unconstitutional. But where in the Constitution does it say that's the president's role to determine the constitutionality of laws or actions? Zach's just shaking his head no. <laughs> right. Article 2, Section 3, the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That was his job, and he was not doing that. And to a large degree, that's why Congress eventually impeaches Andrew Johnson. And it's only through back-channel negotiations when Johnson agrees that he will stop interfering in congressional reconstruction and Congress's efforts to pass legislation and make sure that it's actually enforced, that he is not removed from office. And a lot of this is because far from defending the Constitution or being the Constitution president, he was one of the presidents who ran the most afoul of it, of not seeing himself as the executive, this Constitution says but trying to dictate the laws in the course of the, gov the government rather than allowing Congress to do its job. Now, we saw this earlier when the same slide when we talked about the Republicans selectively reading and interpreting the Constitution as anti-slavery. Well, the same thing happens continually, right? Even today, we're deciding how we're going to remember the past. In what ways does it serve us? And this, we've seen before, for the National Park Service, Andrew Johnson, defender of the Constitution. This is a sign that Zach recognized right away. And what do you see in this cartoon? This is from the, 18, is from the 1860s. See, it's Andrew Johnson here. He has the U.S. Constitution in his hands. Seems to be a good image, right, for Andrew Johnson, defender of the Constitution? He's putting it back. He's not following it. Well, we'll see. This is the, we say, it's how we choose to remember things and why you should always explore, study on your own, do more research. I was surprised several years ago when I was looking for images and saw this 
contemporary cartoon, but realized that this had been cropped for this. This is the one that actually ran in the 1860s. It says, the little boy would persist in handling books above his capacity. And this was the disastrous result. So cropping it here, Johnson, defender of the Constitution. You take a look at the whole cartoon. It's a very different impression of what people thought of Johnson and the Constitution at the time. Not that he was a defender, but that he did not understand the Constitution. It was above his ability and that he was acting in unconstitutional ways and thus getting hurt by it. And this is different than people at the time and later often viewed Lincoln. Though now in the last couple of generations, it's Andrew Johnson, defender of the Constitution, is how pe people at the historic site have chosen to defend him and portray him. And it's Lincoln, if you do read popular history, while might be a great president, had issues with the constitutionists, with suspending habeas corpus and the like. I think if you actually take a look at how both talked about the Constitution and their actions throughout their presidencies, even more broadly throughout their political lives, in many ways, Lincoln is actually the one who's more a defender of the Constitution, doesn't want to amend it, who is being forced to do things he doesn't want to do because of the Constitution, like forcing uh, Fremont to repeal his proclamation. And it's Andrew Johnson who says he's a strict constructionist, but is often doing things that the Constitution explicitly said, or not doing things the Constitution is saying he explicitly should be doing, like executing faithfully the laws passed by Congress. And so that hopefully you've seen today that the normal portrayal of Johnson and Lincoln in regard to the Constitution, maybe it should be flipped a bit. I hope this also encourages everyone, not just when we're thinking about the Constitution or the Civil War era, but also thinking about history in general, of trying to continue doing research and exploring, not just taking what you see a National Historic Site, or what you happen to be told in a classroom, always question it and look for something more. Okay, thank you for being a good class today, and I'll see you next Thursday. You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. and midnight Eastern on C-SPAN 3.